church history part two, as I, as based on the size of the audience, everybody's thrilled. You guys are thrilled to be here, obviously, but maybe others aren't as so, but hopefully they'll trickle in. Maybe it's the holidays. Um, if you could, let's start by reading uh, a passage of scripture. If you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read verses 12 through 19. As you're turning, um, I'm sure you have your handouts already. Um, If for some reason you need a timeline and you were not here last week and you didn't bring, or you didn't bring your timeline back, Mr. McKenzie has timelines if you'd like that. Yes, you do. Um, And my wife needs me, so find that. Okay. Okay, 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 12. And this is Peter writing to a church that is about to be, uh, that is already experiencing some persecution um, and will continue to see increasing persecution as we will find out today. Um, Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, and what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that's what we see as we see people in the ancient church suffering um, according to God's wills and entrusting themselves to God. Um, because of the suffering and the persecution they experienced. Um, So I thought this scripture was appropriate for this time. Um, Let's pray, and then we'll talk about where we're going today. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, and Lord, um, as we consider the history of your church, Lord, we are reminded that um, you are the one that has built and is continuing to build your church. Lord, you promised that not even the gates of Hades, Lord, would be able to thwart that plan. And Lord, we are a living testimony of that, and we give you praise because of it. Lord, as we look back at um, the time in the church that was, um, as the church was persecuted, both under the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities in the early church, Lord, Lord, I pray that our hearts would um, understand, Lord, the great cost that our forefathers um, paid, Lord, to be faithful um, to to the gospel and to the truths of your word. And Lord, I pray that we would um, have a greater love for your church because of it. And Lord, um, I just pray that you would bless this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. Several things. Today we're going to talk about, um, I, like I said last week, generally when I teach, I kind of like to teach in a chronological um, um, format. Uh, but this time I want to take specific topics and chunk them out for us to go over. 
So today we're going to exclusively talk about the persecuted church. I've entitled this The Church Persecuted for Purity and Progress. Yes, that's three Ps. Persecuted, purity, and progress. It's very enjoyable. Um, anytime you can alliterate things, it's good. Um, so the church persecuted for purity and progress. So we're going to talk about the persecution of the church from its infancy, so right after Jesus ascends. Just briefly, we'll talk about that, the Jewish persecution. And then we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about the persecution of the church during the Roman Empire. So we'll talk about it from approximately 60 A.D. to 311 um, A.D. Last week we mentioned 313 marked a very huge uh, milestone for the church, and that was the Edict of Milan. And that's when Constantine, the Roman emperor of the time, legalized Christianity. So if he legalized it in 313, that means up until that time, Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire. And that's what we're going to talk about today is what did that mean for the Christians of that day and what does it, um, what, what life was like for them and then what was this persecution like. Um, as you know, though, so just some brief introduction to what we're going to talk about here. Um, Christianity and believers were initially persecuted, um, not by the Romans, but by the Jewish elite. Uh, we see that in the book of Acts. Um, and even early in its life, Rome was more the protector of Christianity. And we think of that in the way that Paul appealed to his being a Roman citizen uh, for protection from the Jewish authorities that were going after him. But that changed dramatically um, in the early parts of the 60s in A.D., uh, during the reign of Nero. And Christians became persecuted in the Roman Empire for eventually for about 250 years. And the shift between Rome, Jew, the, uh, the Jewish nation persecuting the Christians to the Romans um, happened pretty quickly. And the idea that Rome was a protector of Christianity, Christianity ended pretty quickly. So much so that by the time John is writing Revelation in the 90s, there's definitely the 90s AD, that is, not the 1990s. Um, it is, um, John refers to Rome as the great Babylon. Um, First Peter is written to a church who is beginning to feel the pressures of persecution just before Nero's reign of terror. And until the 200s, most Christian, so we think about Christian persecution, there's a couple things I want to highlight for you is the first couple hundred years, it was very sporadic and regionalized, localized, and then come around 200 250 AD, it becomes empire-wide. And we're, that's one of the themes we're going to hit on here is that there's kind of these persecutions that break out over periods of time in different local regions for different reasons. Um, sometimes at the edict of the emperor, but it only is for certain areas. So we'll talk about that. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's very intriguing to think about how the Roman Empire treated the Christians throughout um, different parts of Roman history, and that's what we're going to get in today. Um, so first, we know that the persecution of the church, as um, seen in Acts, um, was first at the hands of um, the Jewish leaders there locally in Jerusalem. Uh, we see that in several things. One is the arrests of the apostles, the martyrdom of Stephen. So he's the first Christian martyr in Acts 6 or 7. Um, and, and when a, uh, Stephen is stoned um, for preaching a message um, of gospel truth, um, it, it's possible that one of the people that is um, stoning or at least complicit in the stoning of Stephen is Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. Uh, we also see the uh, persecution of Christians in the fact that James, who is the 
uh, lead pastor, we could say, of the church in Jerusalem, was executed by the leadership there. And then also we know the story of Paul's imprisonment as well, his arrest towards the end of Acts, and then him ending up in Rome as well. Uh, so those are the main things that we see in the book of Acts that outline that the, the Christians were persecuted first by the Jews. Yet it didn't take long for the Christians to be persecuted by someone else. Um, so in the year 54 AD, a, um, so think about the Roman Empire. You guys remember, come on, your, your great Western civilization classes from years bygone. Um, Caesar Augustus, right, was uh, the emperor of the Roman Empire that was unified when Jesus was born. Prior to that, um, the main emperor, uh, the one that brought unity to the Roman Empire was a man by the name of Julius Caesar. Several different parts of the, this, uh, I guess, the known world at the time um, had come together under the authority of Julius Caesar. So that's kind of the height of the beginning of the Roman Empire. Um, but now in 54 AD, a man comes on the scene by the name of Nero. So no one wants to name their kid Nero, I don't think, because he doesn't have a good reputation. Um, and for years, Nero um, probably was a good, by Roman standards, emperor, yet he became fatuated with um, growing the empire and exalting himself. Um, if you read about Nero, he's almost like, the first few years, he's, he's doing fine, it seems like, by the empire standards. And then it's like a switch turns on him and he goes mad or crazy. He's almost maniacal in his uh, view of himself and his desire to exalt himself. Um, so around 64 uh, AD, something major happens in the city of Rome. Anybody remember what that is? I'm just, just going to, participation from the audience. A fire. So there's a great fire in Rome. So there's many rumors. It's interesting to read some of the history on uh, what Nero potentially could have been doing during the fire. There's some that say he was in at his vacation home, and um, he didn't really do much immediately about the fire. Um, it, the fire impacted about 12 of the 14 areas of the city of Rome, substantially burning it. Immediately, because Nero wasn't proactive in doing anything about the fire, the thought was, maybe Nero caused this fire. And that might play into Nero's reputation of desiring to be... Um, um, I guess, worshipped as the emperor even more because he had a desire to be seen as the hero of Rome. Um, it's interesting, these, these emperors that really have these, are really self-motivated and desire to uh, please themselves are always wishing like there's poetry written, written about them, you know, something in the history of like the, uh, the Iliad or the Odyssey or uh, Virgil's the Aeneid, but that he would be portrayed as the savior of Rome after this fire um, so some thought that he actually committed the fire. So the, the rumor is happening in, 60, in the 60s that he actually committed this, started this fire. Some historians think it actually happened in like an oil factory, just if you guys are wondering. Um, but if he started this fire, he would be overthrown. So immediately he blames somebody else for starting the fire. Um, he begins to believe and begins to circulate the rumor that the uh, fire was started by Christians. And the reason, he gives a good reason for this. I said that 12 of the 14 areas of Rome were impacted by the fire. There's two areas that were not impacted, and the majority of Christians and Jews that lived in Rome lived in those areas. So he had a plausible reason in his view to say the Christians did this. Yet, even the secular historians of the day um, did not 
um, believe the story that the Christians did it. I'm going to read some of this to you so you can have it. This is from um, the Roman historian Tacitus. A um, couple things about um, what's interesting about this. Tacitus actually references Christians in some historical events that happened, including the death of Jesus at the hands of Pilate. So it's kind of one of those external sources you can use as an apologetic for Christianity. But a couple things here about um, the story. So I'm just going to read exactly what Tacitus says. He says, in spite of every human effort of the emperor's largesse and of the sacrifices made to the gods, nothing sufficed to ally suspicion nor to destroy the opinion that the fire had been ordered. So there's nobody can, everybody's saying he ordered this fire. So what is Nero going to do about it? Therefore, in order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians who are hated for their abominations. So Tacitus doesn't like the Christians. Just understand that. So they're hated for their abominations and punish them with refined cruelty. Christ, from whom they take their name, was executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Stop for a moment. This evil superstition reappeared. Still not a positive life for Christians. Um, not only in Judea, where was the root of the evil, but also in Rome, where all things sordid and abominable from every corner of the world come together. Sounds like New York City or something, right? Thus, first, those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested, and on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself as for their hatred of mankind. So Tacitus, as a um, secular Roman historian of the day, is writing that, hey, I don't even believe the Christians caused this fire, even though that's what Nero wants me to believe. And I also think the Christians are kind of getting what they deserve because they hate mankind and they're an abomination. We'll kind of talk about why he says that at some point here. But he's not sitting here being critical that the Christians should not have been persecuted. But here's a description that Tacitus says about what he did to the Christians. Before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed like, by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illumine it. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows, and in the circus he himself became a spectacle. For he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer as he rode around in his chariot. All of this aroused the mercy of the people, even against these culprits who destroyed an exemplary punishment. For it was clear that they were not being destroyed for the common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. So Nero's motivation in persecuting the Christians was not some major systematic view of what the Christians were doing. He was using it as an excuse um, to, I guess, to pay back, in his view, that they started the fire, uh, yet they did not start the fire, and the historians of the day didn't say that. Um, this is actually during that persecution, most likely is when Peter and Paul were killed. It was during the Nero, Neronian uh, persecution in the 60s. And Nero pretty much, his, the persecution that he committed towards the Christians was limited to Christians living in Rome. So we have this vast Roman Empire um, at the time, yet his, what he was doing against the Christians was purely for the ones that were in Rome. So we don't have empire-wide um, uh, persecution of the Christians at this time. Um, and that's important because there are, as we talked about last week, Christianity is expanding at a rapid rate across the Roman Empire, and the main persecution at this time is in Rome. Okay? So we have Nero. Crazy, crazy Nero. 
So think about that as we go forward. The next guy we're going to talk about is a man by the name of Domitian. Um, and he is much in the ilk of, um, of Nero. Um, he also is crazed um, and a maniac, we could say. And his desire um, was um, that, first of all, his main issue was not with the Christians, but with the Jews. And at this time, there wasn't a whole lot of separation between the Jews and the Christians. The Christians were viewed as just kind of a radical sect of the, um, of the Jews. And Domitian persecuted the Jews and had expectations that the Jews would actually give him the money um, that they normally would give to the temple. The temple was destroyed, if you have your timeline, 70 AD. Domitian comes on the stage around 90, and he has the expectation that the Jews now offer him, as the emperor, uh, their offerings and their, the money that they would give the temple, since the temple is no longer uh, linked. However, Christians get mixed into this because they are a quote-unquote Jewish sect in his view. Um, Domitian loved the traditions of Rome, and Christians and Jews both abstained from certain cultural traditions, and that incited his anger. So when Tacitus says earlier that the Christians were hated because of their abominations and because they hated men, it's not that Christians didn't love men, but Christians abstained from those things that kind of drew the culture together, right? So if they were doing sacrifices or um, immoral fest, uh, festivities, right, to celebrate their gods, the Christians abstained from that. And the, so Christians had a view that that immoral culture, and definitely those cultures where they were forced or people were sacrificing to idols, um, they abstained from that because that was contrary to their view of the gospel and what God had called them to do. Um, so that, since they were anti-culture, the Roman culture, they were seen as an abomination and as a hater of the human race. Um, that's, that's where he gets that idea, and Domitian sees that as well. He even has two members of his household uh, condemned and killed, and they were killed because they were um, given the charge of being atheists, and they were atheists because they believed in one God that was invisible, whereas the Romans believed in gods that they could touch and idols that they could see, um, and they had many gods, um, but the fact that they were monotheists according to the Romans' eyes, might as well have made them atheists um, because you couldn't see their God. He, God is the invisible God. Um, so he even killed two of his members of his household, um, which shows the extravagant ways he wanted to um, destroy people um, that, that claimed to be Christians. Um, he that his persecution was localized as well, though, so we're not talking, in, again, about an empire-wide yet, persecution yet. It was localized to Rome, and then there was parts of Asia Minor, too, so he didn't write out some big law and send it to the empire and say, every Christian needs to be killed. That hasn't happened yet, okay? But we're kind of progressively getting there. So we kind of, there were, there were uh, emperors between Nero and Domitian, just so you know, from 64, I think Nero might die in 65 or 66, Domitian comes to power in the 90s. The gap in between there, there's not much persecution going on to the Christians. There's some, probably culturally, um, but not at the hands of an emperor. And we kind of see that as we go throughout the history of the Roman Empire and its treatment of, of Christians, is that there's kind of this ebb and flow of if one emperor com comes to the throne and uh, desires to persecute Christians, he, he initiates that. Um, but there's other times where, hey, there's other pressing needs, 
Um, our borders are getting attacked. We're losing money as an empire, the Roman emperor would say. So the, attacking the Christians or persecuting the Christians weren't as big a deal. So it kind of goes in these ebbs and flows. Just understand that. And that persecution continues to be sporadic in the 100s. Um, and this is interesting. This is a major, this is how kind of the Roman Empire for the next 150 years decides to determine the fate of Christians. And this was in the um, one specific governor in, in the Roman Empire, a man by the name of Pliny the Younger. Pliny is P-L-I-N-Y, the Younger. So there must have been a Pliny the Older at some point, but we know, I don't know anything about him. He was in the city or the area of Bithynia, which is kind of northwest Turkey, uh, modern day today. And he had a problem, and his problem was that the pagan temples were becoming deserted because so many people had come to Christ in the, in the early 100s. So they were being deserted. So the pagan temples not only were important for the religious worship of the people, but they were an economic impact, too, for, the, for a given area, right? As people came to those areas, they would buy goods in order to make their sacrifices, to present to their idols. So when a, a city's temples are being deserted, they're also losing money, right? So that's a pretty big deal. So Pliny's like, what do I do about this? And Pliny decides to arrest some Christians because he knows there's a lot of things that Christians have been accused of. Um, and I kind of have this a little bit later in our outline, and we'll talk about it. There's many things that Christians were accused of. So he wanted to see, is that really true? Are Christians really what everybody has accused them of being? And he questioned them, and he found that not to really be true. Um, he actually said, why are we going to consider even persecuting these people? Because they really haven't done anything wrong. The only thing they're not doing is worshiping the idols and um, the local religious, um, following the religious customs of the day. So he identified that the Christians were honest. And they didn't really commit any crimes against society. Um, and at one point in his area, they, the authorities had asked the Christians not to have secret meetings. And they ceased having them out of respect to the authorities. So they were still meeting, but not secretly. Um, so that way they weren't showing themselves to be seditious towards the empire. So he wrote to the emperor of the time, who was a man by the name of Trajan, to ask what he should do. Since there really wasn't a formal law of what you do with the Christians. So if someone isn't... I guess what the Pliny would be concerned about is somebody is not, or the, a group of people, obviously there's the economic reason, but is not um, submitting to the religion of the, you know, worshiping the emperor or the religion of the given area, that causes that society to crumble in some way, right? So an idea here is the, the acceptance of all the religions, but centrally the, the worship of the emperor for the Roman Empire helped keep the empire together in some way, provided some solidarity to it, and as that erodes and people become Christians, the, the unity of the Roman Empire is at stake. So that's a big deal, and Pliny understands that. He needs to determine, what do we do about these Christians? And this is what Trajan says. And now I would just think about what he says. Don't think about this, about political policies that we've had in the last 20 to 30 years, because it does sound like some of the ones that we've had, and you, your mind will probably think about this. Uh, Trajan says this, Christians are not to be sought out. Do not go out looking for them. But if someone denounces someone as a Christian, then bring that person in and question them. And if that person refuses to recant and worship our gods, so bring a, a, a person that's accused to be a Christian, they get the opportunity to recant, and if they recant, say, I'm not a Christian, and they worship their gods, they're good. But if they refuse to do it, they should be punished, and they should be killed. 
That's, that's his conclusion. Um, so there's not this idea that the empire is going to go out and send the forces, uh, the military, and go door to door. You know, this is not Nazi Germany, you know, going after uh, the Jews in the 1930s, knocking on people's doors um, to kill them. Um, but instead, it's if someone brings a charge of someone being a Christian, you have to address it at that point. And it's important because the authority of the empire, the authority of the legal system was dependent upon them acting in some way um, because it was expected that people would uh, follow the customs of the given area. So the people had to be punished. Um, and it's kind of a strange policy because you're really, if somebody's really breaking the law, we don't, don't we want to identify that they're actually doing it? Um, but one thing that Trajan did say too is that someone could not bring the charges against someone anonymously. He had to, the person had to go to the, the authorities and speak out that they were actually um, believed these people to be Christians. Um, so it's kind of a strange policy, but it's kind of the policy that exists in the Roman Empire for 150 years or so. But many people were killed because of this um, throughout in various parts of the empire. Um, a couple of the early church fathers, one is Ignatius. He was the bishop of Antioch. He was arrested and condemned to die, and he actually went to Rome. Um, that's where they uh, ended up killing him. Um, and what's important about that is somebody's ratting these people out, right? They're like, hey, I know these guys are Christians, so um, what are we going to do about it? So you start thinking about as doctrinal disputes came up in the church and someone disagreed with what Ignatius believed about a certain doctrine, it could even be uh, rival sects within Christianity or people like the people that were attacking Paul throughout the book of Acts, right? Um, reporting and bringing, turning in the Christians that they were Christians. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but Ignatius is important, and when we talk about the uh, church fathers in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about him in more detail. But as he was traveling to Rome to be executed, he wrote seven instructive letters to different churches. One was to the church at Rome. Rome the church at Rome was hoping that as he arrived, um, they could kind of work things in a certain way so that he would be um, freed. And he said this, though, to the church in Rome. He says, I am God's wheat to be ground by the teeth of beasts so that I may be, as, be offered as the pure bread of Christ. So he's like, don't take this cup from me. Um, I am intended to suffer and die and be a martyr for Christ. And that's what he did. Another uh, one of the early leaders uh, was Polycarp. Um, in 155, and he was the bis bishop of the church in Smyrna, um, and he was also killed and martyred, and as he was brought before the council at the time, and he's, they said, hey, you need to recant, and he says, for 86 years I have served God, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? So in the threat of being killed, he um, says that in response he says, prior to being burned at the stake, he said, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment so that jointly with your martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this, I bless and glorify you. Amen. So this idea that martyrdom is um, key to the future of the church. So Polycarp was martyred as well. Another um, time of sporadic um, persecution for the Christians was during the reign of Marcus Aurelius from 161 to 180. So Marcus Aurelius is different than Nero in Domitian. Um, he's kind of a philosopher turned emperor. Um, he wrote 
uh, he, he was considered very reasonable, was gifted administratively, and ruled the Roman Empire well. And he wrote out um, his quote-unquote meditations, which were kind of his reflections on how he was going to plan to rule, how he was going to rule the empire. In his meditations, he talks about being a kind, just um, emperor and one that promotes liberty. So that's good, right? Sounds like Christian ideals, right? Um, however, he was not, um, he was not uh, friendly towards the Christian. Even in this book, or his, his writings, the meditations, he briefly mentions the Christians when he talks about um, various people willing to suffer for what they believe. Um, he believed that people that suffered unto death was honorable, when they're holding to um, their beliefs, beliefs. He says, only when it's reasonable, but not out of obstinacy, as the case with the Christians. So there's this view that the Christians, holding to their faith, they were just being obstinate, um, that they were not being swayed by other things. It was without reason that they were choosing to suffer and die um, at the hands of the Roman Empire, and they were just obstinate. So that's the view of the Christians at the time, that they were obstinate. Um, but he, like his other ancestors in the Roman Empire, the emperors, he believed that the Christians were the cause of many of the bad things that were happening in the empire. Um, he believed that the empire was crumbling and things that bad that were happening was because of the wrath of the gods and the growing amount of Christians impacted what the gods were doing to bless the empire. So, it's this man that's this great philosopher and stuff, but still, obviously, uh, rooted in the traditions of the Roman Empire. It was during this time that Justin Martyr was killed, and there were several other important stories in the stories of the martyrs from this time, including that of Felicitas and her seven sons. If you want to write about Felicitas, you can read about that. It's interesting. Also, there, this was in Rome, but also some more persecution was going on in other areas in Gaul. There was persecution that came on fast like lightning. Um, still, Marcus, though, did not, Marcus Aurelius, did not have one general edict for the entire Roman Empire about this is how you treat Christians. So from this period, from about, from the time of Nero to almost 200 AD, Christians lived with the threat of being arrested and punished, but they were not systematically being hunted down till later. But there was always this threat, this is like this ebb and flow, what's it going to be now? And they always lived under the Understanding that if they were, if at any point somebody could turn them in to, as being Christians and they could be persecuted for their faith. This is also the time of the apologists who wrote to defend the faith against many false charges. So this, at this time, the church was really trying to establish itself and have a better understanding in the culture for what it stood for. So then that brings us to, I guess, the 200s. And this is where we start seeing empire-wide um, persecution. At the, under the hands of several Roman emperors. So, just in summary, what we've talked about, localized, um, not necessarily minimal, but persecution kind of at the request of certain leaders in certain areas, um, but now it's going to become edicts that were um, announced for the entire empire. Um, the first of these guys is Septimus, Septimius Servus. He believed that all of the empire needed to have religious harmony, um, the idea was if there was religious harmony, the empire would be unified and strong. Okay, so these, these guys aren't necessarily dedicated to their religion. Well, maybe they are, and their religion is the unity and the strength of the Roman Empire. Okay, That's their goal. Um, he believed that the, there needed to be religious harmony under one God, 
And this God was Sol Invictus, which is the unconquered sun. So pretty much the sun was the God. Uh, so everybody needed to submit to the authority of the sun God. Um, and how was he going to stamp out Christianity? He wasn't going to make a law or an edict against Christi- someone being a Christian, but he was going to stamp out any conversions to Christianity. So anybody that was newly converted to Christianity as of 202 A.D., they became an outlaw. That was a, a forbidden act to accept and become a Christian after this period of time. Um, so obviously those that were leading the conversions, but anybody that was converted would be um, eligible for persecution and martyrdom. This was the time that Irenaeus, one of the other early church fathers, and Origen, another church father's father, was killed. Um, there's a story by the woman by the name of Perpetua around this time as well um, that you can research if you'd like. So after Septimus dies, his law is still in the books, but it wasn't enforced. So he had, his conviction is everybody needs to worship under the sun god. No um, new converts to Christianity should be allowed. Um, yet after he dies, um, no one else takes up the same mantle that he does until the next ruler that believes that the Christians are the problem does that. And that's Decius, who comes on the stage in 249. And Decius is more in the line of Nero and Domitian. He's an old-style Roman leader who felt that the pressure of the barbarians, so you guys remember your Western civilization history, if you remember it, um, the barbarians are kind of, kind of coming in at different areas of the Roman Empire, weakening it from its fringes. Um, so that's where it's getting weakened. Um, and Decius, of course, believed that Rome had abandoned her ancient gods. So ancient religion needed to be elevated again. So he began a campaign against those who opposed the ancestral religion. His goal, so you, every time we think about persecution, we immediately think martyrdom, right? Goal is to kill Christians, right? That's kind of what, and that's what I think of, right? But his goal was not necessarily to kill and murder and prosecute and kill Christians, but rather was to create apostates. So the idea of apostates is one that believes one thing, and when, that, when the persecution's turned up, to change their mind, and they recant their faith. So his goal was um, to create apostates, um, not martyrs. Because one thing, as people were martyred throughout the history of the church, you could see that as it wasn't, if you look at, people were still becoming Christians. So it's not like as you killed people, there were less Christians. There's more Christians. It was, it was, a, it was a reason for growth uh, that people were being martyred for the faith. People were coming to Christ more and more. So he was hoping that people would just turn and become apostates. Um, he made it a requirement for everyone to make a sacrifice to the gods and also to burn incense. And get this, not only that, if you did that, you got a little certificate that says you faithfully sacrificed to the idols and that you burned incense at the throne or whatever they, the altar of the idol. So you get a little certificate that says you did that, right? Wow. Talk about big government infringement. Uh, <laughs> makes it not seem so bad here. But, uh, but this was, so if you didn't have this certificate, you were eligible to be persecuted or questioned or tortured about what you believe and why you didn't do that. So this was systematic and universal persecution. This was not limited to just one area. It was the entire Roman Empire. Um, the focus, though, wasn't on martyr, martyring people, but rather getting people to turn from their faith 
So the church actually sees a dynamic that happens here that people are recanting their faith. And there's a whole polemic about how does the church then respond and receive people back that have recanted their faith publicly. Um, that's something we'll talk about in the future. But even these people that were persecuted weren't killed in a lot of instances. They were faithful under torture and allowed to live. So we kind of had this history of martyrdom, but now we have a new branch of Christians that are um, come on the scene that are called the confessors. And these guys are the ones that are faithful under persecution, not to recant, not to turn their back on their faith, and they're willing to, the, the empire actually allows them to live, obviously at a different state because they're probably severely injured, but the confessors come on the scenes, scene at that time, and, and the church really upholds those people as those confessors. Um, and as you start seeing development of kind of uh, a Catholic, the, a Roman Catholic type theology, you start seeing elevation of those type people, so like are these the greater saints? Um, that's how some of this starts, but these people were worthy of respect because they did not turn their back. But how, that's the question you should be thinking at this point is, not that we're going to talk about today, but how does the church receive those back? I'm just going to bet, we talk about the stories of the people that, are, that uh, were martyred, we talk about the people that were faithful, but there were so many people that probably recanted under the pressure, and um, that's a reality, and how does the church respond to those people? So that's the reign of, I think, who was I talking about? Decius, right? Yeah, Decius. Um, the next person is uh, next emperor that persecutes the Christians. So there's a, there's a little time period where they're not being persecuted. There's a man by the name of Diocletian. Um, I believe Pastor Dan mentioned Diocletian last week in the sermon, if you guys were listening. Um, and he came on the scene in around 295. Um, he and one of his fellow leaders, Diocletian was kind of this administrative genius. He was the entire emperor but he only was like the emperor of the eastern part of the empire. Like he ruled it that way. Then he had a, a, a buddy that ruled the western part of the empire. And then underneath them, they had subordinates that they hoped would be the future leaders of the empire. So he was thinking, hey, the problem with the Roman Empire is we don't have any consistency in leadership, right? So he, he puts up this like leadership development plan to have these other guys under his authority. And the guy under him is a man by the name of Galerius. And uh, Diocletian and, and really Galerius hated the Christians. Um, Diocletian didn't really have too much um, opinion about them, but Galerius hated them. And primarily Galerius hated them is because several, a lot of Christians that were in the Roman military had decided that as part of their Christian service, in their view, they could not be part of the Roman military. So they stopped being part of the military. So Galerius says, hey, this is a problem. You know, there's an expectation if you're a Roman citizen, you need to, especially as a, a Roman male citizen, you need to be participating in the military. So Galerius um, brings the issue to Diocletian, and Diocletian says, okay, that's fine, let's not, let's kick all the Christians out of the military. Let's just make it easy. Um, so they do that. Galerius takes it another step forward. Not only does he kick them out, the ones in his area he executes and kills. Um, so he was definitely more zealous than others and had Christians condemned. Um, in 303, Galerius also um, convinced Diocletian to issue another edict against Christians. Um, he, that edict said that Christians should be removed from any public responsibility, um, and also any Christian building should be destroyed, and any Christian books or writings should be destroyed. So that's Roman Empire, 
um, the entire breadth of the empire edict by um, Diocletian at the hands of Galerius. So this was the most intensive time of uh, persecution. Eventually, Galerius, uh, he must have really had the ear of Diocletian, um, convinces Diocletian to abdicate the, the emperorship, and Galerius becomes the emperor, and he continues his assault on Christianity. And this is kind of the time in Rome where the Christians kind of flee to the, the underground areas, to the catacombs, um, away from the persecution that's going on there. Um, some Christians even fled outside of the empire into Persia, which is modern-day Iran. Um, yet things weren't going well for Galerius as an emperor. In 311, he personally got sick and somehow was convinced that the reason he got sick was because of his treatment of the Christians. So in 311, he absolves the edicts that he previously had convinced Diocletian to do, um, and he only wishes that um, the Christians would pray for him and for the empire. Um, this is what he proclaims. With all the laws which we have decreed for the good of the state, we have sought to restore the ancient rules and traditional disciplines of the Romans. That's his motivation for what he'd done in the past. We have particularly sought to have Christians who had abandoned that faith of their ancestors return to the truth. So he's saying they, the Christians had abandoned the Roman uh, religious tradition. After the prop promulgation of our edict, ordering all to return to the ancient customs, many obeyed for fear of danger. And we were forced to punish others. But there are still many who persist on their opinions. And we are aware that they neither worship nor serve the gods, nor even their own god. Therefore, moved by our mercy to be benevolent towards all, it had seemed just to us to extend to them our pardon. So he's pardoning these Christians. And allow them to be Christians once again. And once again gather in their assemblies as long as they do not interfere with public order. In another edict, we will instruct our magistrates regarding this matter. So no longer persecuting these people. And he says, in exchange for this tolerance, Christians will be required to pray to their God for us, for the public good, and for themselves, so that, they, so that the state may enjoy prosperity and they may live in peace. So not only does he say we're no longer going to have Christians um, persecuted, but hey, Christians, by the way, you're going to commit to pray to us, right? In case that God is really the God of the universe, please pray for me and pray for that. And Christians, of course, would be doing that because that's a biblical response uh, to authority. So Galerius um, kind of ended the persecution of the Christians emperor-wide. Two years later, 313 is the Edict of Milan from Constantine. I talked about these other leaders from the Eastern and the Western Empire. Constantine defeats the empire, the one that was serving as emperor in the West, and the Roman Empire is unified again. 313 is the Edict of Milan. He legalizes formally legalizes Christianity in the Roman Empire, and eventually that leads to it becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. Okay, we have 10 minutes, and I have three pages of notes. All right, let's go. So I have 10 things that I think I've hit on a lot of these, but just that um, are reasons why the Christians were persecuted. Okay, just 10 things I've gleaned from my studies, just so you can have these. So I think we've just given a summary, a general outline of what the Christians were persecuted, how they were persecuted, and by whom. But why were they persecuted is the question. Number one, I touched on this last week too. They were accused of being cannibalists um, because they talked about um, um, eating the, the body of Christ and drinking his blood. Um, they were thought to be cannibalists. Um, and 
Pliny, who we Pliny the Younger, who we talked about, who appealed to Trajan, wrote to Trajan and said, interesting, they eat ordinary and harmless kinds of food. So he was, he was, trying to, he was investigating these charges against the Christians, and it was determined that, um, based on his investigations, they eat normal food. They don't eat each other. Um, so they're not cannibalists. But they were accused of that. Number two, they disrupted business. As more people became Christians, less people were buying um, the goods of the area. Um, they did not buy the things that were used in false worship. Those things were key to the local economy. So that's why they were persecuted. Uh, they were viewed as immoral. Um, this was because they called each other brother and sister and greeted each other with a holy kiss. And in the warped, uh, perverted minds of the Romans, they took a depraved view of that and thought that they were generally brother and sisters. Um, so that's, they, they viewed the Christians as immoral. Probably needed to consider themselves. They were viewed as anti-family. Um, you know, a person that came to faith in Christ would, if his family was still holding to the Roman traditions, um, that person would not follow his family, obviously. Um, so in choosing father and mother that do not honor Christ and um, Christ following him, yes, he rejects his family. So they were viewed as anti-family. These are interesting charges against the Christians, considering our day and age. Um, they were ridiculed for their poverty, um, and that was a view that um, because they were poor, no one, no one was needed to protect them. That was a reason that people persecuted them. Um, like I've said before, they were accused of being atheists. Um, and one of the things when Polycarp was being um, persecuted and suffering torture, they told him, hey, in order to recant, all you have to do is say, away with the atheists. And he's like, away with you? I'm not an atheist. I believe in the one true God, right? And so he does. He says, away with the atheists, and he points to the crowd and says, away with the atheists. And so the uh, uh, anger and ire of the leaders of the time. Uh, Christianity was viewed as a novel, new religion. Um, and the Romans thought that it didn't have any solid-rooted uh, um, history and tradition. Um, Christians would argue that it's the continuation of the Jewish faith, just the reality of um, the Messiah coming to save sinners. Um, that was odd, though, because as the Romans captured a given area, whatever the religion of the area was, they just kind of assimilated it, but they held this against um, the Christians. Christians were viewed as unpatriotic because they didn't participate in the city festivals that were filled with rampant immorality and emperor worship. Um, even when they outlined their respect for the emperor because, of his, because his authority was derived from God, they were chastised. So they would make the argument, hey, we respect the emperor. We know that he is in this position because God has appointed him. Um, and yet they, yet they were chastised about that. They were accused of being antisocial. Same reasons. Didn't participate in the cultural things of the day. They were not, however, hermits or monks. Um, but they didn't do the things that the world did. So they were accused of being antisocials. Social. Tacitus said, these Christians were loathed for their hatred of the human race. It's just interesting to think about people that, who were so encouraged to love others, love their enemies. They were attacked by um, the people of the day saying that they hated the human race because they didn't participate in the immorality of the day. Um, and then I think one of the main things was this consistently as pressures were being put on the Roman Empire from external forces as the, as the Roman Empire was um, eroding in power, um, oftentimes 
the Christians were identified as the ones that were the cause of it. Um, at the accusation of Christians um, being the reason that the Roman Empire was falling, Tertullian said this, church father in three, around 300, says, if the Tiber reaches the walls, Tiber's a river in Rome, if the Nile does not rise to the fields, if the sky does not move so that there is drought, or if the earth does, does move so there is an earthquake, if there is a famine, if there is a plague, the cry is at once, send the Christians to the lions. So anything that happened negatively, the, these Roman emperors' immediate response um, would be to blame the Christians. So what was the goal of the Romans in persecuting the Christians? And we've kind of talked about this already. One, they wanted to stamp out Christianity, and they did that initially by um, killing them, creating, which created martyrs, which caused the church to grow. Um, that was one of their goals. But they also, as we talked about, about later, they also wanted to create apostasy, have people turn their back on the faith. Um, and that, those were two of their purposes. Um, the next also, the, one of the purposes in persecuting the Christians was they saw the Christians as the main threat of the unity of the empire. Um, and they desired to see that the, the empire stay strong and blame the Christians for it not being that way. Lastly, all right, there were several results of the church being persecuted. What happened for the history of the church because of it? Number one, um, because so many people were being killed for their faith, there was an idea that pursuing martyrdom was the right thing to do in the normal Christian experience. So that kind of had to be um, um, determined if that was right, and the church leaders had to address that. Um, and of course, um, Christians should have expected to be persecuted. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. On the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who are per persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the church fathers early on had to say, and this is what they determined, if you are brought before the authorities, do not deny Christ. Die like a Christian, but do not try to be persecuted. Do not try to be martyred. So your goal shouldn't be to be martyred, but if you're in that situation, in that circumstance, you know, stay strong in the faith and die like a Christian. Hold true to that. Um, the second thing, besides martyrdom being pursued, the second thing that happened was the church was purified. Just think about that. The church was... The, um, the followers of Christ um, were at a consistent level, on some level, had the threat of being persecuted for their faith. Any, at, at any point, somebody could say, hey, you, hey you're a Christian. Um, I'm going to turn you in, and they could turn you in. Um, so you didn't half-heartedly become a Christian. Um, you couldn't just kind of mix in with the crowd and all that. There was great risk. There was great uh, um, there was great opportunity for you to be harmed because you were a Christian. So that kept the church pure. And then third, the church extended. It grew because of martyrdom. Um, the, um, the witness and the testimonies of the martyrs, those that died and faithfully um, kept the faith, um, extended the church. It grew the church. And that was God's design, that many would come to him because of the testimony of the early leaders of the church and the early regular lay people like you and me. Um, so the church was extended and I have one more thing I'm going to read just because I love this quote so maybe we won't do announcements okay and this is um, just a final um, conclusion from 
church historian Philip Schaff. Finally, while the Christian religion has at all times suffered more or less persecution, bloody or unbloody, from the ungodly world, and always had its witness ready for any sacrifice, yet at no period since the first three centuries was the whole church denied the right of a peaceful legal existence. In the profession of Christianity itself, universally declared and punished as a political crime. Before Constantine, the Christians were a helpless and prescribed minority in an essentially heathen world and under a heathen government. Then they died not simply for particular doctrines, but for the facts of Christianity. Then it was a conflict, not for a denomination or a sect, but for Christianity itself. The importance of ancient martyrdom does not rest so much on the number of victims and the cruelty of their sufferings as on the great antithesis and the ultimate result in saving the Christian religion for all time to come. Hence, the first three centuries are the classical period of heathen persecution of Christian martyrdom. The martyrs and confessors of this period suffered for the common cause of all Christian denominations and sects, and hence are justly held in reverence and gratitude by all. Um, and what I think it's important here is there's this period of time where it's emperor-wide Christian, so the known world where Christians exist were being persecuted. We don't have that right now. Um, but I think what this is important for us to realize, and then my prayer this week as I've been considering these things is, let's remember our persecuted brethren. Let's remember the fact that every single day um, there are people being persecuted for their faith um, at the threat of their lives, torturing, beheadings because of their testimony and their faith in Christ. So let's remember them. May God continue um, to uphold them and strengthen them by his spirit and by his word. Um, and I think that's what we need to take away from this is that there's a foundation here where the church was persecuted, but it continues to be. Um, and it could be that in some of our lifetimes, we're going to experience that and pray that we would be faithful. But let's pray for our brothers and sisters across the world that are under the threat of persecution every single day. So that's my admonition to you with this lesson. All right, let's pray. And then I have like two announcements, I think. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, and Lord, we praise you for, again, that you've built your church, and yes, that the gates of Hades cannot withstand it, Lord, neither could the um, almighty power of the Roman Empire, Lord, but you built your church, and you built it on the blood of the martyrs through, your, um, through the faithful witness of those that you've called out, and Lord, we give you praise for that, and Lord, we do lift up our brothers and sisters across the globe that today, Lord, are... Um, faithfully um, submissive to your authority in their lives, um, who have been changed by the gospel, Lord, but have the threat of being persecuted for their faith. Lord, may you um, grant them peace, and um, Lord, we um, entrust them to you, Lord. Lord, may they remain faithful. Lord, may you um, strengthen them by your spirit. Um, and Lord, if they are to experience suffering, Lord, may they do it for your glory. So, Lord, we ask that you would um, be with us today. Lord, be with Pastor Dan as he preaches your word to us. May we um, be encouraged and convicted um, as he preaches to us, Lord, by your spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.